0: So about 15 years ago, I gave my very first youth group talk. I was a junior in high school, and I had slaved over this lesson. I decided I want to take something easy and simple, so I decided to teach on salvation, because that made sense to me as a 17-year-old. I thought I had crafted this awesome 20-minute talk that would change the lives of everyone who heard it. In reality, it was an eight-minute talk. I had somehow condensed down to five minutes because I talked so fast. And I am now comfortable saying it was not good. My promise to you tonight is that I will talk a little longer and hopefully be a lot better than I was 15 years ago. And that's in part because people grow and change as time progresses. Their, their ability to communicate, to, uh, to, to accomplish things, can seem unrecognizable from what it first was. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And you would expect Jesus to develop and grow, but what Jesus proclaimed from the beginning is the same thing he proclaims all the way through. And so tonight, we're going to look at the message that Jesus was proclaiming, a message that was, that's needed as much today as it was in the first century. And so from our text, Mark chapter 1, Uh, We're going to look at what the message Jesus was proclaiming was and what makes that message good. So Mark begins his letter with this introduction, that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you have been around Christians for any amount of time, you have hopefully heard this term gospel. We often use the term gospel as like this catch-all for Christian belief. It's like, it's like this stew where we toss in some you're a sinner with Jesus loves you, stir in the cross and resurrection, add Bible verses to taste. But just because that's how we use it doesn't mean that's how it was being used in the first century. And it turns out that the gospel actually wasn't a religious term in Jesus' day. It was a political one. Uh, see, the term gospel simply means good news. But it wasn't like your run-of-the-mill everyday type of good news. This word was saved for the significant life-altering announcements. Like we're talking the birth of the emperor's son or uh, Rome completely wipes out an enemy. It, it's, it, it's news that when the people hear it should reshape their lives in a positive way. And so what Mark is doing here is he's recording the gospel, the good news that Jesus shared. And it's a good news that was right there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you hop down to verses 14 and 15, we're told that when Jesus began his ministry, he was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. And here's what it was. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, what we normally hear Jesus say in this verse isn't exactly what he's saying. Normally, when we read this, we say, see, Jesus has come to tell you that you need saved from your sins. That is true. That is not what Jesus said, though. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news. And so we need to make sure we understand what this kingdom of God is. So, help me out. What do you need to have a kingdom? You need a king. Absolutely. What else do you need for a kingdom? Yes. You need people, subjects. Yep. What else? There's one more very crucial thing in order to have a kingdom. Ethan. Bigger. Uh, You don't necessarily need an heir. You need land, yes. So you need these three components to have a kingdom. And now when, when some rather smart individuals try to talk about the kingdom of God, they get hung up here. They want to know where the land is. That's a great question. We're not going to bog ourselves down with that tonight. I want us to focus on these two things, the king and the subjects. So we need to ask ourselves, who is the king of the kingdom of God? It's a really easy answer. God, thank you, God is the king of the kingdom of God. And that, that's really a, a no-brainer from the Bible's perspective. God, after all, is the one who created all things. He's above all things. He sustains all things. So, of course, he's king. But when the Israelites would talk about the kingdom of God, they were actually talking about two things at the same time. They are talking about the fact that God is king, but also that one day God would become king. See, no Israelite would ever deny that God was over all things, but what they were waiting for was a day when God would be present with his people in a concrete, tangible way. When God would be king over all, he would set all rights, all wrongs right, he would bring corrupt governments to their knees and usher in a never-ending era of peace and prosperity. And it's that second sense of God becoming king that Jesus is talking about here In verse 15, the good news is that God has come to his people as he always promised that he would. And so the logical question then is how? How has God become king? The answer is back up in verse 1. See, the gospel is not just what Jesus proclaimed, the gospel is Jesus himself. He is the good news, he's the king, and he's bringing the kingdom. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Accept him as your king. Which should lead us to ask a very good question. Is this actually good news? See, a change in monarchy is not always a good thing for the people, is it? It makes me think of um, the first Avengers movie when Loki shows up, right? He shows up and he's proclaiming a gospel, right? He has good news for the people of earth, but it wasn't good news for the people of Earth. It was just good news for Loki. And so just because there's a change in kings does not mean it's good news for all. So we need to ask the question, why is God becoming king and Jesus good for us all? And that question really hinges on why God created us. Uh, normally when we create things, we do so to benefit ourselves, to make our lives easier, better. Like, think about the guy who invented the wagon, Right? Like he wasn't just one day seeing a horse and was like, I bet that horse feels really unfulfilled. We should give it something to do. No, he's got a big pile of junk. He's like, I gotta move this junk. How am I gonna move this junk? I'll make that horse do it for me. So he invented the wagon. Uh, point being, we often when we create things do so from a selfish motive or intention. But self-benefit wasn't what led God to create us. If we were to take the time to read Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible, in its entirety, it would reveal two things about God that should shape our understanding of us. The first thing we see is that God can do anything. He he literally creates everything by speaking. Uh, To quote uh, VeggieTales, anyone? A few? Okay. So, very first VeggieTale episode. One of the characters puts it like this. God made all the stars out of nothing. He just went, and there they were. But that's so true. God just speaks everything into existence. And that's important for us to get because it means that he didn't create us for labor purposes. He didn't need our help. He's got it under control. And the second thing Genesis chapter 1 reveals to us is that God wasn't alone See, see, God wasn't just this single guy who, 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 who decided to create a pet to fulfill some emotional relational need. God was never alone. Listen to how he describes the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, this gets into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the belief that God is one in essence, three in persons, which which is a huge tangent. I, I only bring this up to stress the fact that God wasn't alone. That the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have enjoyed perfect, selfless, loving relationship with each other for all eternity. They didn't need us to somehow complete them. And if that's the case, if God didn't create us to get something from us, then we have to conclude that God created us to give something to us. That God created us to join in this this relational dance, to share in the love and the joy that he's enjoyed in himself for all eternity. And if you let it, if you stew on that for a little bit, it'll blow your brains, because it's amazing. What is almost as shocking as that is how much we resist sharing in that relationship. We fight joining that dance more than a sixth grader does going to the middle school dance. We just, we want nothing to do with it, and the reason for that is we mistrust God. We doubt his intentions. We assume that he has some ulterior motive to his kindness, us. And so we refuse him to our own detriment and destruction. But this is what makes Jesus and his news so profoundly good. Not only does Jesus bring God to us, but Jesus brings us back to God. That in Jesus we see the eradication of any doubt that we may have about the goodness of the king toward us. And though Mark doesn't answer that in this opening chapter, he does give us a clue that somehow the good news is Jesus himself. And so here's the point. The good news that Jesus proclaimed is that God is king and he has come to reign. And he invites us to enter into that kingdom.